Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We step into spring this week. It's going to be the spring equinox tomorrow, March the 21st, which is really the beginning uh, of all that is great about the summer weather and the summer season. It's already feeling a little bit warmer uh, as we speak. However, uh, it's a very chill wind that's blowing down uh, Westminster Way because in Downing Street, uh, Theresa May uh, is in power uh, and not in office, or in office but not in power, whichever way around that should be. Basically, she has no authority. It's all been stripped away from her. She has no Credibility. She's going to ask for a delay to Brexit, but nobody knows how long for. Some people in the Houses of Parliament say that she should be getting a delay for a long time. She doesn't want to get one longer than June. She doesn't really understand what it is that she wants to do. She doesn't really understand what it is that her own party want her to do. And she doesn't really get the fact that we are all looking at her with a mixture of a sort of revulsion and incredulity because we can't actually believe that she could be so bad at her job and not realise that she's so bad at her job. So I'm saying to you today, not for the first time, finally, it is time to go. Please just leave, Theresa. You've done all you can do with no rancour, uh, with no hostility. Please just walk away from the job and leave it to somebody who can actually achieve something because you, I'm afraid, uh, have achieved the square root of absolutely nothing. 0344 499 uh, is the number. Meanwhile, out there, there are some other things to worry about. It's a bit more of a dangerous world in which we now live, despite Brexit or because of Brexit, despite the EU or because of the EU. Turkey, of course, a country that the European Union wanted to co-opt as a member of the expanded European Union. We now have President Erdogan saying that he's going to send Westerners home in coffins. Now, that may just be political rhetoric, but it's the kind of language that should not be used when it comes to Muslim uh, preparations and the problems that we have uh, with all sorts of terrorist organisations in his part of the world. Absolutely staggering stuff. 0344 499 1000. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now let's talk to Dr Paul Stott, Research Fellow at the Centre on Radicalisation and Terrorism, member of the Henry Jackson Society. Uh, the world, of course, has been filled uh, with images from New Zealand and that terrible event that happened down in Christchurch uh, where 50 people were shot dead, innocently uh, worshipping at the local mosques in that part of the world. All sorts of things have kicked off since then. Uh, there's been widespread revulsion around the world uh, at what happened down there. Uh, but of course, President Erdogan has gone slightly the other way and started talking about things like conspiracies against against Muslims. Uh, he's talking about Gallipoli because, of course, the uh, uh, the war, uh, the Second World War battleground uh, was going to be very much a, a part of the commemoration ceremonies that go on every single year in April. Um, and it's really quite unfortunate that he started to use the kind of language that is likely to cause what you might regard as uh, a breach, at the very least, of international diplomacy. Uh, Dr. Paul, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. What is he about, uh, President Erdogan? Because He's variously described as a guy who, on the one hand, wants to kind of appeal to his home supporters, as it were, in Turkey, who can be quite hardline uh, Islamic fundamentalists. And at the same time, he wants to be recognised in the rest of the world as the man who's kind of bringing Turkey to the table, if you like. 
Well, in a way, this is precisely what he's done this week in that he's written an article in the Washington Post on the Christchurch attacks, which is is comparatively sensible Mm. and in a lot of ways unremarkable. And then at Turkish election rallies, which he's been holding, he's been behaving in a most remarkable way and saying some extremely problematic and provocative things that have really led to a, a diplomatic breach with both Australia and New Zealand. Right. And I mean, firstly, for example, there's, there's very little point in getting social media companies to take down footage of the, the terrorist attacks on the mosques if the president of Turkey is going to put them on a large screen at his own rallies. And well, that was I, one of the I, more what... remarkable things I read this morning when I was hearing about all of this. And the idea that he would do that is extraordinary, isn't it? It is, it is, and it, it completely undermines the pressure that uh, you know companies like Facebook and YouTube have, have been put on, and it, it derails the debate about their responsibility um, to, to, towards users and uh, th- their, uh, their need to, uh, to tackle extremist material. But it, it's also the case with Erdogan that he seems to be trying to make sort of much more political connections between the attacker and Australia and New Zealand mm. as countries, right. which is is pretty weak, really. This is somebody who doesn't seem to have been a member of a, of a broader political party and who has next to no support for his ideas. I mean, for example, in the manifesto that the gunman wrote, he's talking about retaking uh, Const- uh, Constantinople, which is what Istanbul used to be called when it was uh, Christian. You know, the idea that large numbers of Australians or New Zealanders are planning to do that is just nonsense. Mm. But when you watch the footage of, of Erdogan's rallies, that seems to be what he, what he believes. And he's talking about, you know, if people come to Turkey to do this, they'll be sent back in caskets, mm. as people were in the First World War at Gallipoli. Yeah. And Gallipoli to Australians and indeed to New Zealanders is sort of part of the foundation of their country. Absolutely right. And it seems in particularly poor taste, doesn't it, Paul, to to bring it up at this time, because it's in April, I think, that the commemorations go on. And he was actually giving a speech supposedly commemorating uh, Gallipoli in the first place. Yes, it's April 25th, uh, what's known as as ANSAC uh, Day, and hundreds, uh, thousands travel from Australia and New Zealand to Gallipoli. Um, The the, the founder of Turkey, Ataturk, said um, at at the time when, you know, the the commemorative stone and the the graves were being established that um, they would be revered, that they would be treated uh, as, as they treat their own sons. And I think there's a feeling certainly been expressed by the Australian foreign minister that Turkey now seems to be changing its position yeah. because these are indirect threats that are being, uh, being made to Australians and, and New Zealanders who may travel, and that's deeply regrettable. No, of course. And it is, in a way, two different countries, as you've quite rightly pointed out, you know, the kind of the Washington Post representation of Erdogan and then the one that he speaks at sort of nationalist rallies, where you've got a lot of British families probably com- uh, preparing to go out to visit various resorts in Turkey over the next few weeks when Easter holidays are around, because partly it's one of the hottest parts of the Mediterranean to go to. And then you, you go to somewhere like Istanbul, and I remember when uh, Jamal Khashoggi was murdered there by the Saudi Arabians in the embassy, it was pointed out that there was a bit of hypocrisy going on because there are so many journalists imprisoned in Turkey by Erdogan um, that he can hardly present himself as a kind of a liberal voice of democracy. 
No, Turkey is a sort of pseudo-democracy. Yeah. It's not a liberal democracy. In a way, it has uh, some characteristics perhaps in common with, with somewhere like Putin's Russia, that you've got this sort of strongman uh, figure mm. who appeals to a distinct base, and then others who are outside of that base are treated very poorly. So you obviously have the point you've just made about journalists, yeah. but also academics. Turkey's jailed hundreds of, uh, of academics in recent years. There's also the further problem that a series of European countries have, have really tired of Erdogan and, and Turkey because uh, Erdogan wishes to campaign in Germany, in Austria, in Holland to get the votes of Turkish exiles there. And it's been damaging integration policies in those countries. Yeah. And what about the kind of the diplomatic view of, of, of Turkey in general? Because it's not that long ago uh, since Angela Merkel was making noises about inviting them into the EU and trying to make them more kind of compliant, if you like, with Western values. That's all kind of gone away now, hasn't it? Well, there's, there's two issues, really. There's uh, the, the fact that Turkey is still applying to be a member of the European Union, mm. but also that Turkey is a member of NATO. Yeah. And I think in recent years, um, we've begun to look much more critically uh, at, at Erdogan and, and where he's taken his, his party of the AKP in this much more sort of pious uh, direction and a much more anti-Western direction. So there's actually some doubt necessarily about whether he actually believes he can get membership of the European Union. But what we've begun to see in um, Austria, in Germany and, and Holland is evidence emerging of Turkish intelligence operations in those countries mm. that are, are deeply damaging the targeting of Turkish political dissidents, targeting of the Kurds, the use of Turkish religious uh, buildings and organisations to develop intelligence on those dissidents, a sort of spook Im imams, which I think is probably, uh, probably a first. And in 2018, Austria actually closed seven mosques and announced it was going to expel 60 Turks mm. for doing this. Right. So it, it, you're getting into the sort of situation we used to be with the Soviet Union, you know, where, where diplomats are, are being seen or uh, religious figures in this instance are being seen as hostile to the countries that they're in. Right. It's a very strange sort of uneasy calm, I feel, at the moment about all of this, you know, because there are so many um, sort of touch points in the Middle East now. We've got ISIS supposedly uh, in retreat very much being uh, told uh, well we're being told that they're they're finished as a force but they still keep popping up from place to place we've got syrian problems still going on you know iran has still not really been solved israel is still in a state of flux i mean it's there's quite a lot of tinder boxes out there without me wishing to kind of raise a flag on anything here I think that's right. In, in a way, very little has been decisively uh, resolved. Mm. And, I mean, it's interesting listening to, to Erdogan and he's talking about what Turkey's done against the Islamic State. Yeah. And whilst that's been very important and has helped uh, really sort of knock them down, the reality is that Turkey was very slow to the party in terms of taking action against jihadists in Syria mm. and really allowed pretty free access uh, via its southern border into um, into Syria for you know foreign fighters who wish to go and fight for a long time, and it was only really when some of the Western countries put their feet to the fire that they properly closed their border. Right, and is Turkey becoming more polarised? Do you think as a result of what Erdogan is doing and saying? 
Very much so. And, um, you know, you mentioned people going off on, on hol holiday to Turkey and whatever. Yeah. And in, in a way, they'll probably miss all of this because you've got, uh, if you like, a more sort of European, uh, secular, Western-leaning uh, section that, uh, you, you know, you'll find in those holiday resorts, you'll find in uh, some of the big cities. But his base is very much in the rural areas and uh, among more, more conservative and older um, Turks and you know there's some big political differences between those two groups and his use of the uh, the video from Christchurch and some of the rhetoric some of it seems to be about actually bashing and playing down uh, you know attacking those internal political opponents in Turkey as well yeah it's very very strange indeed and one final question for you Dr Paul just slightly off to the side uh, you probably noticed Donald Trump was meeting with the Brazilian uh, new leader uh, Jair Bolsonaro um, he's apparently suggested that maybe they should invite Brazil to join NATO. What do you make of that? Is that just a Trumpism or, or do you think that's on the cards? I suspect that probably is a, a Trumpism. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, there are sort of long-term questions about uh, Turkey's membership, but I'm not sure that uh, adding Brazil is, is necessarily where we, where we want to go. It, it's a North American and European alliance and uh, not one that really uh, historically uh, has taken in Latin America. No, OK. Dr Paul Stott, thank you very much indeed. Research fellow at the Centre for Radicalisation and Terrorism, a member of the Henry Jackson Society. Erdogan one uh, says San, uh, who's tweeted us at Talk Radio, is the same as he always has been, a divisive person who will do and say anything that will get his AKP party re-elected. He continues with his extreme right-wing rhetoric, which finds home with uneducated nationalists in Turkey. The West needs to wake up to the danger posed by him. Well, certainly, uh, when you read some of the things that he's been saying, talking about uh, the shooting down in Christchurch, he called on New Zealand to hand down, in his words, a proper punishment uh, to the white supremacist. Uh, he says, you have nefariously, perfidiously and vulgarly killed 50 of our praying brothers, you will pay for this. If New Zealand fails to do so one way or another, we will make you pay for it, he said, uh, referring to the killer, uh, who, of course, is not going to be named by the New Zealand Prime Minister, so I won't bother naming him either, uh, because I'd rather he rotted in hell anonymously, to be honest. More gun talk from a water pistol from the farmer of fury. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. They call me hell. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Got some great tweets to read out to you on the Brexit front, but uh, we're going to take a little break from Brexit for the moment, even though uh, Prime Minister's questions will be happening in about 10 minutes' time, just over that. Ross Kempsell, our political editor, of course, here at Talk Radio, will be here uh, to talk us through what Theresa May is going to say, uh, what Jeremy Corbyn is going to say, what the likelihood is uh, of anything actually changing uh, the situation vis-à-vis -vis Brexit, vis-à-vis -vis Brussels, and whether or not the letter that she wants to write will actually be written before the close of play today. It really is quite a ludicrous situation. I have to say. And I've been calling for the Theresa May resignation letter now uh, for at least two hours. And maybe uh, we should be calling for it all throughout the course of this weekend because there's a lot of pressure inside the Conservative Party and inside the Cabinet uh, from people who think that she may have actually run her course and it may well be time for her just to step aside. No rancour, you know, absolutely no, um, uh, you know, violent outbursts, no insults. Just say, look, Theresa, you've done your best. Please just now step aside because it's time for somebody else to take over. But can you imagine? If the person that was to take over 
had a first name, and that name was Lucifer. Because we're going to talk to Lord and Marshdale, senior editor at the Baby Centre, uh, because apparently somebody wanted to call their son Lucifer uh, and did so quite successfully. Lorna, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi there. I can't really imagine calling somebody Lucifer, but I mean, I guess it's only relatively recently. And when I mean recently, I mean the last couple of hundred years that people probably thought Lucifer was a bad name. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is the thing with names. They they go in cycles and they go in trends. And um, while, while Lucifer isn't one of the uh, trends we've predicted... <laughs> it just sounds funny to hear it. <laughs> you know, this is my son. I mean, even Damien, even though Pete... I mean, I still, because I'm a, a, a sort of child of the 70s, I suppose, Damien still means the omen to me. And if ever I meet anybody called Damien or they've got kids called Damien, I always just give them a funny look and just think, really? Is that the best name you could come up with? <laughs> And yet its meaning has now kind of come to mean quite a, quite a cool, trendy baby name. Yeah, so. yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, cool, trendy baby names. I mean, my, my, my daughter's called Emma, right? And she's now 28. And there was a time when we she was born in America. But we moved, and it was a very unusual name in America. We moved back to London. And when she was about five, you would call out Emma in the, in the playground. And there'd be about 15 kids would turn around, you know, because everyone was called Emma. Absolutely. Um, my son's name is Charlie, which is now one of the... Um, now one of our top ten, right? Um, but at the time it felt unusual, especially mm. because of the diminutive form. But yes, yeah, I had the same issue as you. He, there were a couple of Charlies in his class. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, there when I was go. growing up, Charlie was a name you called somebody who was a bit of an idiot. You called yes. a proper Charlie, but I mean that doesn't happen anymore <laughs> because, of course, we're much more respectful of each other nowadays. But what about the kind of um, uh, the unusual names? I mean, I was talking to to some of the guys here at, uh, at Talk Radio, and I remember there was a case I think in France relatively recently, the last couple mm. of years, where a judge actually prevented parents from calling their daughter Nutella. Do you remember yes, that? I, I read that too, and I think it's now on France's banned list because I, I believe, unlike the UK, France does have a list of banned names, including things like Nutella and Strawberry as well. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Because you've got, I mean, a lot of the kind of the rock star, you've got Apple, who was Chris yes. Martin, I think, and um, Gwyneth Paltrow's daughter. You know, and, and I remember going all the way back to Frank Zappa, where he had Moon Unit Zappa and, uh, you yep. know, Zoe Bowie and all these kinds of names from rock star names. But, I mean, I don't think they've ever stopped it from happening here. Have they? There's never been a case where, um, you know, a court has stepped in and said, you can't call your child that. Well, not that we know of. I mean, there, there may have been cases where uh, parents try to get their name registered and we're told they can't. And that's something we, we probably wouldn't know about, mm. you know, publicly. Um, parents can appeal against that, which I guess is then when it may go to court and that the case may then mm. kind of come into the public domain. Um, but as far as I know, I don't think that's ever happened. Right. Um, we do have a kind of general rule that um, a name's only stopped in exceptional cases, um, either if it's offensive or if it would kind of cause harm to the child involved. Right. And that doesn't um, really happen very often, I suppose, does it? I, yeah, who knows? Well, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I mean, if if, if a child did want to um, name, sorry, if a parent did want to name a baby something embarrassing, it would be stopped, so we wouldn't know about it. But I don't think parents would generally do set out embarrassing. No, not, because not I mean, the, baby, the baby centre's done this study in, in Scotland, and it's, and it's found that basically Olivia was Scotland's most popular girl's name, which is lovely, and Jack... Uh, for boys, which is kind of old-fashioned, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the top ten for us, for boys and girls, does tend to be very stable. Mm. It's kind of further outside there that we tend to see more unusual names on the rise. Yeah. Um, I think parents 
like to play it fairly safe with their child's names for obvious reasons. Yeah, I mean, you have um, to also imagine what they're going to be like, um, you know, as adults as well, because some names which sound cute for children may not quite kind of transcend and transition into adulthood. Yeah, that's true. But then um, taking the case of Apple, as you mentioned earlier, who knows that could, you know, take on a whole other meaning. Mm. Into, not not a meaning, but a tone. As, yeah. as the child grows up and as that name becomes more popular, it just becomes normalised for an adult to have that name. So, Well, it sounds it, also like it could be the, the company rather than the fruit. You know, in which case, yes. you know, you, I mean, it's all very well being a slave to the iPhone, but that makes it ridiculous. So what about uh, one of the names you found in your study, Awesome? I mean, yes. that's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not something I might choose, but who knows? The child I mean, might it, presumably so awesome. you can go up to somebody and go, hi, I'm awesome. <laughs> and they go, yeah, well, well we know. <laughs> what we have found, actually, one of the trends we have found is increasingly um, shortened names. Right. So maybe awesome is going to be, I don't know, uh, shortened to Aussie or Aussie. Yes, yeah. It's still <laughs> I not, don't know what's still not working for me. And what about <laughs> no. the, I mean, much anticipation about the royal birth coming up. That always yeah. leads to something uh, akin to a sort of uh, a stampede of people naming their kids after the royals, right? Yes. So last year when we had uh, Prince Louis being born, um, Louis became a new entry at number 91 for us. Mm. So uh, the royal influence is always felt when there's a new baby or a wedding. Um, we had in 2017, going back just a couple of years, George and Charlotte uh, shot up as well. Mm. So um, we're definitely influenced by that. But I think there's also a case of the royals being influenced now, the younger royals, by, by what is fashionable. Right. And is there any, um, I mean, because it's a very much a sort of, I don't know, a, a conversation that the media is having, whether it's being uh, repeated outside the media kind of uh, um, sort of telescopic state, is is the whole kind of gender fluidity thing. I know that in America, where I was recently, there's there's an awful, an awful lot of people who are not giving their kids names which have a specific gender. Well, it's funny you should say that because we noticed a huge trend last year in gender-neutral names. Really? Yeah, Harley being the biggest one by far. I mean, to my mind, Harley was it's always quite a male name because of Harley Davidson. Yeah. But then, of course, we've, we've had Harley from, and I can't remember the name of the film, but it's, it, it's, one, it's one of the one of the big Marvel or or um, DC films. Oh, okay. That that um, that shot up the boys and girls, which was really interesting. That is and interesting. I think the split was 51% girls and 49% boys. Mm. So um, we're seeing a lot of gender neutral names as mm. that kind of debate carries on. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, it's fascinating times, and uh, hopefully, whoever it is that is born Lucifer uh, will go on to do many good things and uh, hopefully know, not live up to you know the devil worshipping side of things. But Lorna, thank you very much indeed. Lorna Marsh, uh, senior editor at Baby Centre. Imagine calling one of your kids Lucifer. I mean, it just doesn't seem right, does it? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices. Down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. You're listening to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio in association with The Times. It's politics tamed and we've got loads, loads more to do on the political front. I've just been handed uh, the letter that Theresa May has sent to Donald Tusk. And I have to tell you, it is possibly one of the most boring documents I've ever read in my entire life. Here's the opening paragraph, right? Dear Donald, the UK government's policy remains to leave the European Union in an orderly manner on the basis of the withdrawal agreement and political declaration agreed in November, complemented by the joint instrument and supplement to the political declaration President Juncker and I agreed on the 11th of March. For God's sake, I mean, talk about pulling them in with the first paragraph. I mean, you know, call me old-fashioned, but that is probably the worst possible first paragraph that I have ever heard or seen written down. For God's sake, listen, we've had an alert, I'm afraid. It is now time to check in with the countdown clock to see how long before it is that we don't leave the European Union and nothing happens. Well, it doesn't look like anything's happening, uh, but it's still only nine days away from uh, nothing happening. And, uh, of course, Theresa May is now asking for an extension uh, so that nothing can happen a bit later on, uh, closer to June the 30th. Dear God, let's talk to Roy's in the Wirral. Hello, Roy. Hi, am I? Well, there's one lady lady who can't see for miles and miles. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know. She can't see the end of her nose, for heaven's sake. God's truth. Anyway, NHS, mate. Yes. Yeah? I've had ongoing back problems. I did my discs and uh, swimming in the sea and things like that. Anyway, cut a long story short. It's been going on for the best part of maybe eight, nine, ten years in lower spinal area. You know, particularly painful. Very painful and very difficult to sit down, I would imagine. Well, uh, anyway. I've, I've been sent to a couple of different physio classes, you know, where you climb a mock pair of stairs and you do this and that, you know, and you do squat and sit on a rubber ball and all that. So I ended up going to the GP and said to it, I said, could, we, could I just have this looked at? Can yeah. I have it find out exactly what's going on mm. in the back? Right. And it, his, his first comment was, why? Do you want to end up with surgery? Right. Well, surely that's what Which you is just a want it bit fixed, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. It I is mean, a little bit off button. Yeah, yeah, but that's why they do so it because anyway, they they want you to stop asking for stuff. I know, yeah. So he said, "I said, what I'll do?" He said, "He said I'll refer you to the pain clinic." All right. Yeah, that sounds so a bit I've worrying. So I'll refer to something called the pain clinic. The pain clinic. Oh no, no, no. Who's in charge of that? Joseph Mengele. It's it's you just know. what the physios do with with you know with with the laptop. Right. 
But anyway, but let me tell you, I'll give you another example and then I'll go. Right. My, my daughter phoned me this morning, but it, 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 my granddaughter's particularly poorly. We've got to phone the, the, the GPs at 8 in the morning to get right. an appointment. So I phoned at 8 in the morning. Now, my granddaughter's throat's been swabbed and everything because she's she's got a terrible time. She's only six. Right. So I phoned this morning. Um, could I possibly have a, an appointment? So Preferably after, after lunch. No appointments at all, and there's none whatsoever. There's no surgery this afternoon. Mm. They've got the doctors have gone to a meeting. Now, oh, for God's sake! Is I said, it, well, can is you it on get, a golf course? I said, well, I, I said, can you get me to another surgery? Can, you know, appointment with another surgery. Yeah. Hang on, I'll have a look. Uh, Saturday, eleven o'clock. Unbelievable! It really is about a six-year-old child. It's quite a depressing. Who's missing school? It was poorly. I know. And, of course, we get the NHS for excuses saying, oh, well, that's just unfortunate. It's not like that all the time. Well, it is like that all the time, Roy. Thanks for the call. Let's talk to Neil in Macclesfield. Hi, Neil. Hi, Mike. All right. Yeah, not bad, uh, mate. What do you got for us? I think, um, I think the thing with Theresa May, um, she just reflects everything that's wrong with our, you know, public services, uh, you know, culture at the moment. You know, yeah. incompetence. Is actually rewarded. You know, we're talking about the NHS yeah. and all that sort of thing, and, and and it's right across all public sector, all the councils, all the quangos, all the NHS trusts. Every single way you look, there are people in high-powered jobs getting paid way, way more than they would get in yeah. private industry, and they do an appalling job. And and somehow that is just acceptable. You know, they just get. Yeah, well, fine. I said this yeah. the other day. I had a rant about the fact that we've got all these people now working in all these jobs and none of them yeah. know what they're doing. None of them can actually do their job. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, the BBC is another uh, case in point. I've yeah. got a good BBC story for you. Go on. Uh, a few years ago, I met a, uh, a BBC producer and he said they they uh, they were looking at um, commissioning a, um, a pirate drama, right? right? So they got all of the... Um, they got about 20 of their... Uh, technical stuff together, and uh, and they went out to the Bahamas and the Caribbean oh, yeah. to to look at some locations and uh, and shops and that kind of thing. So they spent about two months out there uh, getting drunk mm. and uh, spending money on expenses, and then they came back and uh, they said, "Well, how did you get on then?" And they said, "Oh, well, we couldn't find anywhere. We'll have to go back next year." <laughs> Sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous, it, isn't we're it? we're paying for it. Well, of course we are. But the point is, is that, you know, if you want to do a pirate drama, why don't you just go down to Cornwall? There are pirates there. Oh, you know, no, if you go no, to Pirates no, of the no, Caribbean. No, no, no. You've got to go to, you've got to go to Jamaica, mate. Yeah, you don't have to go to Jamaica in. It's closer. <laughs> you know, I think you're fine. But anyway, listen, Neil, thank you very much indeed. Neil in Macclesfield there uh, with the story about uh, somebody you met from the BBC. I mean, this goes on all the time in all kinds of industries and in all kinds of places. And I don't really care if people do it. I just don't think they should be doing it with our money. That's the problem. Anyone can fall in love. That's the easy part. You must keep it good. That's worth about 27 million of our money, isn't it? Imagine Anita Dobson singing the song. I had no idea it was an actual song. Blimey. We've got the news this morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry to tell you, as if 
uh, our public servants are not wasting enough money. It turns out the BBC have managed to overrun uh, their set rebuilding project uh, up in North London by about 27 million quid. Now, un- ordinarily speaking, I work for a broadcast organisation. Uh, if anybody in this organisation was £27 over budget, there would be hell to pay. The idea that it goes £27 million over budget is completely and utterly extraordinary. I'm delighted to say that we've got Meg Hillier with us, Chair of the Public Accounts Select Committee, uh, to talk us through how on earth this has happened. Meg, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much for joining us. I mean, I'm right to say, am I not, that in any private organisation and, and people have said, well, you know, ITV revamped their Coronation Street set, you know, you would have a much tighter uh, budget control process, but also you wouldn't have that kind of money to play around with. And this is our money after all. Well, it certainly is. It was ta- it's a licence fee payers' money, and one of the reasons we look at it is for that reason. I mean, I have to say, the, the point is that we can see what the BBC is doing. We can't see what every private company is doing, but that's because it's taxpayers' money, well, quite. whether it's through the licence fee or not, that's being spent. And in this case, I mean, you know, the BBC have said that they weren't complacent. We think, well, they were really slow, slow at the start to understand what needed to be done and to properly manage that. And if you were managing an extension in your home, you'd think it through and think about you might need the plumbing done, you might need the electrics done, and you'd think about all the things that might go wrong that you might need to think about setting some money aside for and they didn't do that and that has been one and every delay then can cost money and there are some things everything they've said that they've uncovered like asbestos and things like that very important things that you can't completely predict but we still say you should be able to plan that you might have those things go wrong and some of them were predictable. Look, it took them six months to work out exactly what to do about the bricks when they finally got the contractor mm. on board, and that's a six-month delay, and all those delays cost public money. And who's supposed to be in charge of the project, Meg? Is there an individual? Is there a, a BBC committee? Who is it? Yeah, well, we went. We spoke to the individuals in charge. Ultimately, of course, the Director-General has oversight of the whole thing, but there were, there were people along the way in charge of bits of it, and that was one of the problems, that there wasn't really a strong... Com- team with proper project management skills but but ultimately i mean the board overall the, the bbc head people have to take responsibility for something that was supposed to be a two-year site so you know originally it was built just thrown up quick and cheap you know well it was, it was that cheap but that was 35 <laughs> years ago now yeah uh, and now here we are 35 years on now they could have predicted some time ago that they might have needed to do something about a site that was supposed to be there for two years and that's still knocking on 35 years on mm. so they knew this was coming it's a major flagship for them it, it has still over six million viewers and speaking as a london mp and in fact, East, Albert Square was out modelled on Facet Square in Hackney, in my, my, in my constituency. So it's absolutely uh, critical, that it, I think, that we have a London... Listen, my place in London's on the, on the East Enders map, you know, so don't worry about that. But nevertheless, I mean, I'm, I'm a veteran of watching old TV sitcoms when they slammed the door shut and the whole thing shook. I don't mind that. You know, I don't, I don't care whether they've got something more solid than that, to be honest. I mean, can they not do it well, slightly I think, cheaper? Well, I think it's good. Yeah, maybe, but I think it's like, we're certainly getting to the point of being a bit dangerous and uh, also, we got a pretty. I mean, you, you and I may not like. We, 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 I remember the old Doctor Who's and all that. You know, yeah. the, the cardboard set. My kids are a bit more sophisticated than that. <laughs> Netflix and that lot are giving the BBC a run for their money. So, I, yeah, they needed to think about doing something about it. But they have known for 35 years that this would be looming. Once yeah. they realised it was a success, so they needed to plan properly further ahead and make sure that they'd nailed down certain things. It's quite it is complex. You've got to have plot lines that fit in with the fact that you're rebuilding the set. You know, these are not difficult, easy things to do. But no, I'm sure. I'm sure they're not, but, never, but nevertheless, I mean, this is getting sort of coming up to HS2 proportions. Yeah. They're telling us oh. it's not going to be done by 2023. 
Yep, that's the problem. It's now five years late as right. well as £27 million over budget. And when the BBC is, you know, they're struggling having this big debate about whether to pay the 75 plus, the, the licence fee for people who are over 75, and they've got £27 million that didn't all need to be wasted on, on an overrun on this. They just didn't plan it properly from the beginning. Uh, you know, but there's an opportunity here. Some of your listeners may be interested to know that there's a second site on the Elstree site that's going to be developed, which will develop new plot lines. So if you do live in the East Enders area, you might think, what would be the modern East London that they ought to be reflecting on the BBC now. Yeah, but even well, bit, you know, so these are things that will happen down the line, but as you say, not for some time. Are they going to have a sort of mini Canary Wharf thing going on? Well, I think I think they're open for suggestion. I'm certainly going to talk to my local school children and say, what do you think right. that EastEnders should reflect as your real life now? Because, you know, Albert Square... Yeah, doesn't quite reflect the London, the, the Hackney and East London that I no. know. But the point is here, it's taxes, it's public money. They needed to, it, there's a sort of, and it's not just the BBC. We see this on my committee all the time. It's like other pe- people spending other people's money. And this is our money, your money, my mm. money, my constituents' money. And, you know, you need to think, if it was your own home, you wouldn't want to waste this much money. Would no, you? exactly. And have you it? actually now got sort of a grip of it, as it were? Are you able to, to, to bring these people, hold them before the Public Accounts Committee if they yep. don't do what they've promised to do? Well, this is the second time we've done it, and three years ago there was already a delay, and this delay has now extended. So we have asked for them for an annual update on how things are going, and you know, shown them, told them really that we're going to keep a very close eye on it now. We, you know, unfortunately, we tend to see we have to look at the way it works a bit. We have to look at the numbers after they've spent the money, and then sometimes that's too late. But the bigger message here is all of these big projects need proper project management, mm. and it needs to be actually sometimes up front say it's going to cost more than, than sometimes we hear. Sometimes there's a de- I don't think it was the case in this one, but sometimes they try to keep the price down because it sounds too bad to go out to the public and say it's going to cost a lot of money. It's like build, rebuilding parliament. Yeah. Some of these and projects are going to be costly, but let's be honest about the cost and then keep it to those costs. And well, that would be good because I'm, as soon as I mentioned on Twitter that I was going to be talking about this subject, I mean, there's an awful lot of people out there who are fed up to the back teeth of the BBC and the amount of money they charge for their licence fee and the, uh, uh, the sort of arrogance with which they operate their budgets. And a lot of people now saying... Surely we should be rethinking the whole licence fee scenario, and this doesn't really help their cause, does it? Well, no, and certainly I know the BBC have had that battle uh, in the past when the, when the government was looking at whether or not to keep the licence fee going on. That's always, I know, for, for the, there's always a bit of a buzz around Parliament about that debate, about whether that should happen. But actually, I do think that there is a, a legitimate issue about having publicly funded broadcasting. If you only do it through commercial measures, there's a danger that you miss out on some of that important public service broadcasting. So you'd have to find a way of delivering that if you ever got rid of the license. That's true. What's the money they're spending? Yeah. I get all that, but I think it's such a huge organisation now and has fingers in so many different pies, which never, you know, it's a bit like the EU. Nobody quite knew it was going to expand into, you know, sort of web-based um, news. Nobody knew it was going to have apps like Sounds. Nobody knew that it was going to have all sorts of, you know, online activity, which was nothing to do really with, with television. And so, you know, a lot of people think some of that could be hived off. Well, some of it is, of course. They have BBC Commercial, and they're also doing collaborations with like ITV on mm. a new uh, sort of Netflix rival, I suppose, where they both put up their own... Oh, this is BritBot, yeah, isn't old it? program. BritBot, exactly. I don't, Britbot. That sounds like an idiotic idea to me, I have to say. I mean, why would you want to pay money to watch something you've already watched? Well, people... I mean, you have BBC... Was it the, the old... Uh, Gold TV, TV Gold, whatever it's called. Yeah, the one don't where they pay for that, everything anyway. Well, no, that's true. But actually, the problem is the BBC in the past sold the stuff that we'd paid for through the licence fee mm. too cheap. Yeah. Um, and then they haven't benefited from that. So at least this time, we would say to the committee, well, you're seeing the value of what you produce and trying to make some money out of it, which would hopefully yeah. keep the licence fee down. But don't uh, they make they money it selling right, it but now? We watch that too. But don't, we make, don't they make money now selling that stuff to Netflix and Amazon and others? 
Well, they do sometimes, and sometimes they're actually doing co-productions with Netflix mm. in this slightly bizarre world. So I think you're, what you're, your point is perfectly right and valid that they are now a much more complex organisation doing things that you're a commercial station that actually compete with the commercial world. They have a commercial arm. We now are able to look at the, that and how mm. they spend money there as well, which is a new thing uh, for, the, for Parliament to right. be able to do that. Um, we have access to some of their information, and I think that's important too. So we do push them, and I think there is a, you know, a, 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 they are not neither one thing or the other. They're paid by the licence fee, but they've got this commercial arm as a bit yeah. of a mix of things going on there. Yeah, because they, so they, they launched a new a channel in Scotland the other week, didn't they? Yeah, they did, um, and that's partly because actually if, uh, my Scottish colleagues here all say, well, we want more money spent in Scotland. It's taxpayers or licence fee payers' money. Well, they would say we want that. Our shares, but no. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so it's about, so this is the thing for the BBC. They get it always, whereas I don't think people say that to ITV. Because, no, you know, no I mean, the only, so, the only group of people who are more vilified than the BBC are, of course, MPs, uh, of which you are one. I mean, how's that feel <laughs> well, at the moment? Well... Uh, I have to say this is not a good place. But, I mean, I think that you've got to remember that the executive decides what Parliament can vote on. So mm. it's very frustrating being here as one of 650 MPs. Yeah. And having... Sometimes you have a power when you get a, a vote, a one one vote out of 650, but it is difficult to influence the agenda. We can try. We all we are trying in various ways. But, look, we've got, you know, what, nine days to go now and no package yeah. at the moment. I'm very worried for my local businesses and my constituents. We're seeing prices already go up in the shops. The uncertainty is not good, and we do need to get... To a resolution. Yeah. So obviously tomorrow in Europe with the prime minister is going to be pretty key. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not holding a great deal of confidence. But what I do think is good, and and it may well be that I get proved wrong about this. It wouldn't be the first time. But but there is a lot more engagement going on between MPs and their constituents, and indeed the general population. Even if uh, they hate you, at least they're watching you. Oh, well, yes, certainly. Well, not, I didn't sort of come here to be a celebrity on the telly. I don't think most of us did, but actually, because most of us are engaging all the time. But I see, yeah, I, keep, I think actually, you're right, there is that level of engagement. That's a small positive, but it's only for the bad, unfortunately, for bad reasons, because mm. normally if you're getting on and doing the job properly, people are, you know, much less interested in it. Yes, well, that's right. Exactly. They don't really know what uh, you get up to. So anyway, listen, good luck. And Meg, thank you very much indeed. Keep an eye on those people. Don't let them spend our money, uh, because, you know, we're all trying to make a living out here in the commercial sector. You know, it's not very easy for us. OK, I'll bear that in mind. Thanks Thank you very much. Meg Hillier, uh, Chair of the Public Accounts Select Committee there, uh, saying she's going to keep an eye on this £27 million overspend. I will guarantee you, uh, despite Meg's good works and despite uh, all of the, uh, the, the, sort of, uh, the, the watchful eyes that are on the BBC, they will somehow find a way to spend even more money between now and 2023, which is when the new EastEnders set is going to be ready. Surely, to heavens, they could have built a real town for that kind of money, couldn't they? rather than just an EastEnders set and actually put people in it who can live there. Let's talk to Susan in Exeter. Hello, Susan. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon. How the devil are you? Not too bad at all, thank you very Good. much. I, w- I was just saying to your lovely producer, one of them, Marta. Marta, yes. Are you- um, look, basically, I left school at 15, but I've got a rough idea when people don't like me and things are going wrong. Mm. Um, I think it's time to put Mrs May out to grass. I agree. Um, because basically, you know, nobody's agreeing with her. But she, you see, the problem is, Mike, she's very cerebral, unlike myself. She's, well, I'm she not sure that's true, you know. I, don't, I think she might she think is. she is. She, no, she has, she you is. know what she doesn't have? She has no emotional what? intelligence. Well, 
I was going to say something different. Mm. Uh, I was going to say she has no intuition. She's not in touch with what people think about her or no. she just doesn't care. No, you're but right. It's not working. It's not working because she has to listen to what people think about her and what people care about because that influences what how people react to her. And she just doesn't have it. She doesn't have intuition, does mm. she? No. You know. She, she, has, she seems to have no understanding either of well, the no. fact that, as you say, people... people don't like what she's proposing. Well, because she's... she's stick... I wonder what birth sign she is. I wonder if she's like my sister. I wonder if she's Taurus, because when Taurus have got a bee in their bonnet, they dig their heels in, and the worse you, you, you go at them and the, and the more conflict they face, they just dig their heels in like a little bull in a field. Yeah. You know, they dig their heels in. And I'm, I'm getting that with her, unless she's Capricorn. But She's 1st um, of October, which I think makes her... I think that makes her um, not a Libra. It might be Libra, no. Well, I'll have to look at in the thing. I've got the thing here. But she um, she's not listening. And, it, and it's very um, it's very antagonising and disruptive to people because she's not listening. She doesn't have this... Be- you see, she's, got, she's talking about what's good for the country, what's best for the country, and her beautiful clear-cut glass flowers. But why did she get rid of all the coppers off the streets? Well, it's a good you question. Know, that wasn't that wasn't good for the country. No. You know these these people. They're sitting up in their ivory towers. She goes home to her darling Philip, which is lovely. They're very much in love still. They have a wonderful marriage, which is to be admired. Well, uh, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to finish up with what can only be described as the today's Libra horoscope for Theresa May. Uh, it says this: At work and home, reaching out to people gets you the cooperation you need. <laughs> As the sun moves into this part of your chart where deals are done, a signature on a contract means a lot to the family. If you're ready for a new relationship, passion smiles where special awards or prizes are announced. I can only say, uh, Susan, that you've inspired me there. Thank you very much indeed. Theresa May, I'm afraid the horoscope isn't really coming true because uh, the deal isn't working. Uh, but thank you very much indeed. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.